we bless your holy name. We worship you. We magnify you. We give you all the honor and the praise and the glory for everything that's done in this service and in times to come. We bless you, Holy Father. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Here we are on Palm Sunday, which is about the triumphant entry into Jerusalem by Jesus in the last days, the last week of his life here on the earth, his time on the earth. We've um, made mention before about the uniqueness of John's gospel in the fact that he wrote it some 60 years after the events of Jesus' life took place. And he wrote, and this gospel that was written that bears his name is probably 30 years or so after anything else or after everything else was written in the, we know of as the New Testament. John narrates a story for us that the other gospel writers refer to as well, talking about Palm Sunday. But he shares some things and comes at it from a different angle that none of the other gospel writers did. We'll start in John chapter 11, verse 1. There's the story of Jesus' return to Jerusalem in triumph. Now, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, I want you to notice that, that parenthetical uh, comment is something that he refers to and gives us more detail about further on in the story. But John is narrating the account that he was an eyewitness to. He goes further in verse 3, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, though he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man, the Son of God, excuse me, might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and when he had heard that therefore he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, but because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. A couple of things we want to point out. We'll make some comments as we go. But by and large, I just want to read you the story. John starts the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday 
with information about what may be considered the greatest miracle that Jesus performed in all of his ministry. And that was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There's not another gospel writer that refers to Lazarus. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 16 that's not about this Lazarus, but Lazarus the beggar and the, the rich man, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But nobody else tells us about Lazarus, the raising of the dead. Nobody else tells us or refers to even the smallest detail about what I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think it was the biggest miracle he performed. So here's the story. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and stays where he is rather than going back into Judea. Now Judea was a place where Jesus had been threatened by the Pharisees and they had taken counsel with one another to kill him at their next opportunity. The Bible says that after that threat was made, Jesus no longer walked in Jewry or Judea. So when he says, let's go back to Judea, the disciples know why they left there. They know why they're not already in Judea. It's because Jesus is a wanted man by the Pharisees in that province. But so when the disciples question him about it, we're going back to where you want to be, where they want to kill you. Jesus gives us some very important information. And notice he said, if you walk in the day when it's light, he stumbleth not. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there's no light in him. Jesus is very simply saying, if you're someplace in the will of God, it doesn't matter what they want to do to you. The safest place to be is wherever God puts you, regardless of what the people in that place want to do to you. These things said he, after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. In other words, they took Jesus' comments about him sleeping as being a part of the recovery process. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they that thought he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. That's a very poor translation. The language really says Lazarus died. Jesus is explaining to them the truth of what's going on. And so he said, Lazarus died. There's a big difference about being, between being, in, being dead and having died. And Jesus has already said some things, and he will continue to say some things to indicate that he knows what's going on. He knows God's plan and purpose in this situation. He's already said this sickness will not be unto death. Now, somebody could try to be a stickler for details, and say that there's a contradiction in the Bible because Jesus said that the sickness would not end in death, but he did die. 
But folks, Jesus isn't saying that the sickness won't end in death. He's saying that the sickness won't ultimately result in the death of Lazarus. It's as if Jesus is showing us the importance of what you say and how you say it. Lazarus died, but that's not the end of the story. And he knows that the reason it's not the end of the story is because God has something planned that's greater than you could imagine. And that's the very reason why he spent two days longer after he heard the story that Lazarus was sick. So Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus died. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Notice what Jesus said. He's talking about his disciples. Now, this is the last week that he is here on the earth. So the disciples have been with him for three and a half or so years. And they've witnessed the miracles. They've witnessed the signs and wonders. They've witnessed the healings that have taken place. But Jesus indicates that there's still an area that they need to believe. So he says... I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Folks, there's always going to be one in the crowd (laughs) whose position is we're all going to (laughs) die. Then when Jesus came, he found that he, he, Lazarus, had lain in the grave for four days already. Now Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, just a couple of miles away. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary stayed still, sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it unto thee. Now, folks, that on face value is a tremendous statement of faith. She doesn't believe what she's saying, as is indicated where Jesus identifies that thy brother shall rise again. Martha clearly does not apply that to the natural situation, the death of her brother. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Well, Jesus isn't talking about that resurrection. He's talking about bringing him back to life here, now, on the earth. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, Believest thou this? Now she's going to make another great confession. She said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come unto the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now the Jews, Jesus was not yet come into the town, But he was in that place that Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily 
and went out, followed her, saying, She goes to the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you lain him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Now, folks, I want you to realize when the Bible talks about the Jews that came down to Mary and Martha's house to comfort them, it was a sign in those days of the status or the wealth of, the, of a certain house that would hire mourners. And these mourners would weep and wail and do all kinds of crazy things to show honor intending to show honor I guess to the person who had died so when it talks about the location of Bethany being close to Jerusalem that's just simply giving us an idea that there would be a lot of Jews that would come from that short distance away from Jerusalem to mourn for this man Lazarus which we don't know anything about other than he had two sisters so when the Jews saw that Mary left, they assumed that he was, she was going to mourn at the gravesite. And so they went with her, and there was a large entourage. And verse 37 is an excellent example of where idiots become experts. These are people the Jews that he's referring to are people that didn't believe in Jesus. But now all of a sudden they know what things are and how things should be. They know something about this power of God that Jesus claims to be operating in and become knowledgeable or pretend to be knowledgeable about things that they have no understanding of whatsoever. Again, some of them said... Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? These are the same people that didn't believe it was Jesus that opened the eyes of the blind. And Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, came to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Now, the basic understanding of the Jews concerning death is that within three days, it was still possible for a man's life to come back to him. But after that three days takes place, by the fourth day, the decomposition of the body is taking place. And that's what Martha is concerned about when she said, Lord, he stinks. She's just simply saying it's been four days. It's been too long for anything to be done for him. He's been, his burial practice has been completed, which the last part of that is the napkin that is placed around the head or over the face. But the Jews 
learn something about death and death burial practices from their time in Egypt. And we know of it from the Egyptians that their death process or burial process is mummification. So Lazarus, by the fourth day, has already completed the burial process and he's laying in this cave as a mummy. So Jesus said unto her, when Martha raises her objection based on the decomposition of the body, Jesus said unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou would believe thou should see the glory of God? Now folks, because of the four day understanding that the Jews had of a burial and burial process, it's sort of a give up, giving up position when Martha is saying it's been too long that's what all of Israel would, would understand and accept it's too late because of the decomposition of the body for anything to be done for this man now folks the Jews have not seen anybody raised from the dead so this is all theory for them I mean, they might as well say four days was too late as to say one day was too late. They don't know anything in the world about what they're talking about. But then again, those that know nothing always have something to say. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I have said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. What has Jesus said? This indicates to us that there was a prayer that we know nothing about. Or the things that he had already said were sufficient to bring about the purpose that he's now going to engage in, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Let's think back to what we know that he said. He said this death would bring glory to God. He said that this sickness would not result. The end result of, of the sickness would not be death. He has indicated that he knows what the situation is, that Lazarus did die. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus has either exercised authority through the words that he's spoken concerning Lazarus. Or he said a prayer to his father that we know nothing about. I think it's the first. I think when Jesus said, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. He's indicated that the words that he's spoken already have qualified as exercising authority in this situation. You may remember that as soon as Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. 
He stayed where he was for two more days. He didn't hurry to get there in time. And that's when he said that this sickness was not ultimately in the result in death. When he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I think it's just simply a matter of Jesus exercising authority based on what he knew in his heart. He knew in his spirit that he could raise Lazarus from the dead. And he understood, apparently, from the things that he said, it indicates to us that he understood that God had a, a great purpose in this. So he said, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me, and I, knew that thou had, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they which may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto him, Loose him and let him go. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. In verse 41, Jesus said, told him to take away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. It doesn't say where Lazarus was laid. It says where the dead was, was laid. That's when he says, I thank you that thou hast heard me. And in verse 43, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, when Lazarus comes forth, the Bible tells us that he's bound about, mummified, in other words, hand and foot. And the napkin, the last thing that takes place in the burial process, is about his face. Why did Jesus call Lazarus to come forth? This must have been, to some degree, a common grave, meaning there are other dead people, other dead bodies in the cave. So if Jesus tells them, the Bible identifies to us that Lazarus was bound hand and foot. If he's bound hand and foot, how's he getting out? How's he moving? When the Bible says that Jesus called Lazarus to come forth, if he had not been specific, then whatever other dead bodies were there in that cave would have come out too. And since Lazarus was bound hand and foot, and the mummification process becomes a hardened shell, then how's he moving? It was quite simply the power of God that brought Lazarus out. Lazarus didn't walk out on his own. He was pulled out by the power of God. And that's why he had to tell him, loose him and let him go. Now here's, a, here's my question for you. How could the other gospel writers not relate this? How could the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, leave this out? They didn't do us a disservice by leaving it out. But it seems to me that that would be the miracle that everybody would remember. 
But it also speaks to me to indicate what Jesus said over and over again to his disciples. I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. I believe with all my heart that all four of the Gospels are inspired by God. But each Gospel kind of focuses on a different aspect of Jesus' ministry or his time here on the earth. John, some 60 or so years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead, who has read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. John becomes the one that says, if everything Jesus said and did was written down the books, the world couldn't contain the books. So Jesus called him with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin and Jesus said unto them loose him and let him go then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council saying, what do we do? How are we going to handle this? For this man does many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Folks, the Pharisees have already committed themselves to Jesus' death, no matter what he does, no matter whether he's sent from God or not. How in the world could the Pharisees not take stock of their position and their belief and their intent to kill him when they hear about these things that were done with Lazarus? Would that not cause anybody to say, whoa, maybe we're, we've got the wrong idea about this. Maybe we're taking the wrong course of action. But they didn't. They just doubled down on the importance and the need to get rid of Jesus to save their own place. Verse 49, And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us. He's thinking about them and their place and not God's will or God's plan. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Here's John's comment about that as he's telling the story again. And this spake he not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Folks, the, the whole purpose of the last week in Jerusalem that Jesus spent here on the earth, the purpose for him going to Jerusalem and these things that took place are very simply the, the high priest examining him to determine whether he's a worthy sacrifice. Now we know what they didn't know. We know that Jesus is about to pay the price for the world. 
we know that everything that Jesus has done in his time here on the earth was predicated on the fact that he was going to die for the people of Israel. The one thing that was first and foremost on Jesus' mind and heart can be summed up in one word, substitution. Jesus knows he's dying for others. He knows the reason that God has put him here on the earth is to die for others. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to be raised from the dead the third day. He knows and understands all of the things that the Pharisees would not consider, even though he's given them enough information to deduce for themselves what was going to take place. And if they had expressed any type of faith in him, to point to the fact that he was the Christ. Then he could have leveled with them and told them specifically about certain details and such. But John tells us that Caiaphas said these things. And these things must have become common knowledge. John wasn't part of the council. So these things must have become common knowledge somewhere after the fact. And he tells us that Caiaphas has just prophesied that Jesus is a worthy sacrifice for the nation of Israel. Not having a clue what he's doing, of course. But John fills in the blanks for us. Verse 52, and not for that nation only, but he, also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. This is John talking from experience with the understanding that the Gentiles the price of the Gentiles' sins was paid by, by Jesus as well. Verse 53, Then from that day forth, they, meaning the Pharisees, took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country unto Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he, would, where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Chapter 12. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with them. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, he said, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This said he not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear that which was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor have you always with you, but me you have not always. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. 
But the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people were, that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took palm branches, took branches of palm trees, and went forth to meet them, and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, folks, this is about Palm Tuesday. Palm Sunday is recognized as the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, just because it suits the religious practices of the, of the modern-day church. We get one Sunday for Palm Sunday, we get the next Sunday for Easter. But there wasn't a week that separated these things. The people that shout Hosanna to the king when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, some of which are the very ones that within a matter of about five days are going to be shouting for his death. And Jesus, when he found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. Notice verse 16. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that he had done these things unto them. Here's another commentary that John makes. And I think this one is very significant because can you imagine how his disciples would come to revelation and understanding by remembering certain things that occurred Maybe things that had not been sufficiently explained to them. Maybe things they had not asked for explanation on. For example, in Mark chapter 4, it talks about the parable of the sower sowing the word. But his disciples came to Jesus later on after the crowds had gone away and asked him what these things mean. If they had not asked him, he wouldn't have shared with them. And we would not have the, the explanation of how the kingdom of God works. And we would not have the understanding of the meaning of this parable because Jesus said, if you understand this parable, you, you have to understand this parable to understand any of them or all of the rest of them. So over the years, the disciples, the ones that were with him and were witnesses to these things, gained greater understanding as they went because of the work of the Holy Spirit, one of the things Jesus said about the Holy Spirit was he would bring to your remembrance all things which I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's job is to remind you. And the reminders that would have come to the disciples would play a key role in the revelation that the church, you and I, would receive over the years. The people, therefore, verse 17, the people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how, the, how we prevail nothing? Behold, the whole world is gone after him. 
Folks, if it were not for the devil blinding the minds of people and keeping them from the truth of the gospel, it would be a very simple thing to evangelize the world. And it wouldn't take a long time to do it. There are others that have evangelized the world. Coca-Cola has evangelized the world. You get big companies, big corporations. They know how to evangelize the world. They know how to reach the world with their product. But there's no devil fighting against what they do. But for us in the church, it wouldn't take a, a superhuman effort for us to evangelize the world either. But we've got a devil that's fighting against the opening of the eyes of the blind. The devil is there taking the word or discounting the word or explaining away the word that would set people free. Verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus answered them and said, The, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now the Greeks coming to Jesus would seem like an insignificant detail but it's one that John seems in, uh, impressed to share with us. And it was a, a, a representative of the Gentile world that's coming to Jesus as well. Jesus indicated the gospel was first for the, Gen, for the Jews. And then when the Jews rejected it, then he went to the Gentiles. We see that played out in the, the lives and ministries of the disciples the apostles we know that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles just in the same way that Peter was an apostle to the Jews so here even before Jesus goes to the cross the Gentiles represented by these two Greeks are seeking for him as well Jesus goes on to say in verse 27 now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Folks, Jesus went into these things with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what he had to do. He knew the pain and the suffering and the misery and the supernatural punishment he was going to have to endure in the heart of the earth for the three days before the resurrection took place. And he's tried to share it with his disciples, but it seems like they never got it. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Here's the reason I'm here. To go to the cross and sacrifice my life as a substitute. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it, was, that said that it had thundered. And others said an angel spoke to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This said he, signifying what death he should die. And the people answered him and said, We have heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while, while the light is with you, walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whether he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spoke Jesus and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, folks, there's, um, we've been teaching for a number of weeks on the subject of healing. And one of the text scriptures we used was Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Who was wounded for our transgression. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm about to quote verse 5. Verse 4, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken of God and afflicted. Verse 5 goes on to say, Who was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with or by his stripes we are healed. Chapter 53 of Isaiah is identified by everybody. There's no dispute. There's no controversy. It's the messianic chapter. It identifies the work of Jesus when he goes to the cross and dies as man's substitute. Verse 1 of that 53rd chapter starts off with exactly what's been quoted here. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? We found examples, several examples, where unbelief and doubt on the part of the people hindered the power of God from producing what Jesus was sent to the earth to bring about, the results that he was sent to bring about. We saw in Mark chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 14 that when Jesus went to his own hometown of Nazareth, the people didn't believe him. He told them very specifically, he read from the Old Testament scriptures that pertain to the Messiah the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And then he tells what he's anointed to do. Part of his healing for the physical body. But the Bible says, Mark's account, Mark chapter 6 account, says 
because of the unbelief. He could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say he wouldn't. Says he couldn't. The language suggests that he tried and failed. He could there do no mighty work. Savior accepted. He laid his hands on a few sickly folks, folks with minor ailments, and got them healed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. They had heard the stories, the reports of the things that he had done in Capernaum, the signs and wonders and miracles that took place and that could have taken place. It was God's will for, for them to take place. The very same type of miracles, the very same type of healings for the people in the city of Nazareth. The Bible is very specific in telling us that it takes faith on the part of the individual to take hold of the power that God has sent to the earth that he wills for man to walk in. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom is the hand of the Lord, the arm of the Lord revealed? If you want the power of God in your life, you're going to have to believe for it. It doesn't work to take an idea or to support the idea that whatever God wants is going to take place because we know that what God wants is for all the world to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if God wants that to take place, then why doesn't it take place? We know the Bible tells us about the road to hell being wide and spacious. The road to heaven, though, is, is a narrow way. That seems to indicate there will be more people that are unsaved and lost than those that will be born again. I thought God wanted everybody to be saved. He does. And he's made provision for everybody to be saved through the substitutionary work of Jesus. But whether you receive it and take hold of it or not, it's up to you, not him. You're the one that's been given authority here on the earth. And that authority certainly pertains to your own life, whether you will receive or reject the things that God has provided for you through the sacrifice of Jesus himself. But though he had done many miracles, so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be, might be fulfilled, which he said, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah had said again, he that blinded, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of them. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me Believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light unto the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejects me and receives not my words, 
has only one that judges him. The word that I've spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father has said unto me, so I speak. From this point, John goes on to tell the story of the Passover and the things that Jesus shared with him during the Passover. Again, it's entirely different and unique from any of the other gospel writers' account. And they all give an account of the Passover, the last Passover that Jesus shared with his disciples. John tells us about the workings of the Holy Ghost and the things that Jesus said as an eyewitness to these things. The disciples didn't understand even what Jesus meant when he talked about the Son of Man. We've made or put much emphasis on the fact that in the 65 things that Jesus said about himself, he called himself the Son of Man 60 out of the 65 times. And only five times did he identify himself as the Son of God. And three of those times is in one setting. Jesus understood the importance of being the Son of Man. But the church magnifies the fact that he was the Son of God. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think it's important that we do keep in mind that he was the Son of God. But we need to keep our eyes on the fact that that did not mean that the power that he had was because he was the Son of God. We know the power that he received to do these signs and miracles came as a result of him being baptized by John in the Jordan River. We know that the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man. He came to the earth only as a man. That didn't mean he gave up his position as the Son of God, but any power or glory or abilities that he would have had as the Son of God here on the earth, he laid those aside. He stripped himself of any power that he would have or have had because he was the Son of God. Instead, he operated here on the earth just as and only as a man would be able to operate. Now, folks, if that were not true, then why did Jesus need to be anointed? If Jesus was here on the earth as the Son of God to prove to us through signs and wonders and miracles who he was rather than refer to who, and point to the, who the Father was, then why would he have needed to be anointed? Jesus was anointed by the Holy Ghost after John baptized him in the Jordan River. And Jesus, when questioned about his authority, identified, although they didn't get the, the people that asked him the questions, were trying to trap him rather than understand. And so they didn't get the answer that he gave 
But Jesus clearly identified himself as a man anointed of God. Not the son of God with some special power because of his relationship with the father. But he was the son of man operating only as a man could under the operation of the, or the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Jesus recognized during that last week, really less, a little less than a week, but during that last week of his life, much of what he spent in Jerusalem, he recognized that the clock was running out. He recognized that the time had come to him to fulfill his purpose and his plan. He was very clear about what that purpose and plan was. He knew he was about to die for the sins of mankind. He knew that that meant he would become sin. See, Jesus had access to the things that we understand now too. He knew that the serpent of brass on the pole, which brought healing to the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness, he knew that he was going to have to be lifted up and that on the cross which the pole signified or illustrated, he knew that he would become sin. That doesn't mean he would become a sinner, but he, he knew it, that it meant that the sin of all mankind would be laid upon him and he would suffer the punishment for every single person on the earth and those who had been born before he ever came. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat great drops of blood. A physical condition that medical science tells us is totally and extremely rare. There have been only a, a few cases of where people were under such pressure that they sweat blood. And nobody's ever survived it. Jesus might not have survived it either had the angel not appeared and came to strengthen him. I think one of the disservices we do to ourselves and to others is when we try to sanitize the work that Jesus did. See, we talk about substitution. We talk about Jesus dying for our sins. And somehow or another, it winds up looking like Easter lilies. But Jesus was recoiling from every moment of it. His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, I've got news for you. It was possible. And if that Jesus had ended his prayer there, then you and I would be eternally lost. But he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. 
Jesus is in great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And folks, in my opinion, I think he suffered more in the Garden of Gethsemane than he did on the cross. The cross was simply carrying it out, carrying out the plan that he had committed himself to, God's plan of redemption. Not to say that there wasn't severe pain involved, because there was. But the thing that Jesus recoiled from, the thing he resisted more than anything else, was to be separated from his Father. If he becomes sin for the world, if he becomes the substitute for mankind, then he has to be separated from God to suffer that punishment and penalty. Jesus had to die spiritually so that you and I in spirit might receive eternal life. I know some people don't like to think on those terms, but I don't believe you can understand to any degree whatsoever the work that Jesus did and the sacrifice that he made without knowing that he was separated from his father for those, that, those hours on the cross and the three days in the belly of the earth. That is the definition of spiritual death, which is separation from God. Folks, we come to a point in time in our calendar where the world looks on the work of Jesus but when we look on Jesus and the work that he performed the substitutionary work that he performed what do we see the Bible tells us that Jesus suffered the shame of being made sin on the cross because he had something else in his vision that made it worthwhile. And the Bible tells us that the thing that made it worthwhile for him was the new life that comes to you and me. Folks, I want to challenge you to something. I want to challenge you to see Jesus as he is. To see Jesus as he was when he went to the cross. to recognize the awful price that he had to pay. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That can only be true if he legitimately and in real life paid the price for your sins and mine what would be that price what would it take to pay the price for your sin I think some of us look at ourselves and say well we're we're pretty good people but the Bible says if we've transgressed 
and even the smallest thing, we're guilty of the whole law. So if we've ever made a, a mistake, if we've ever slipped up in any way whatsoever, then we're just as unrighteous as the worst murderer in the history of the world. Jesus knew what he was here for. He knew why he came to the earth. He knew what it would take. He knew what the sacrifice would be. Yet he did it willingly, certainly with anguish and despair. But he, prayed, he paid the price for you and me willingly. Let's pray. Father, we magnify you for your plan of redemption. Open our eyes that we might see it. Open our eyes that we might get at least a glimpse of the awesomeness of the price that Jesus paid. Jesus, you are our king. You are Lord of all. And through your sacrifice, you have been given a name that is above every name. And that name is what you gave to us. We worship you, Master. We commit our lives unto you. A worthy sacrifice for us. You shed your precious blood for us. And in return, we give you our lives. Thank you, Father. For your righteousness. Thank you for the life that you have given us. Thank you that we are born again. Thank you that you are always on our side. In Jesus' name, amen.